HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, it's Cider Week NYC. Last year I was up uh, talking with Steve Sellen of South Hill Cider. He's from the Finger Lakes. And uh, this is a special show we put up for Cider Week, so tune in. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is another special Cider Sessions edition. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We're broadcasting from Jimmy's number 43 today. It's July 2015. Beer Sessions Radio is brought to you by Union Beer Distributors, supplier of world-class ales and ciders. In-studio guests with me are my pals Gay K, Cider Explorers from United States of Cider, and at Hello Cider on Twitter. Our special guest today is cider maker Steve Sellen of South Hill Cider from the Finger Lakes region of New York State. We're talking about wild, lost, found, and forgotten apples on this special episode. All right, Steve Sellen, you're one of a small but growing group of American cider makers um, who is seriously exploring the roots of American vernacular cider, man. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. That's a pretty good intro. Good, good job, Gay. That's a nice little intro Thanks, you wrote Jimmy. for me. Thank you. And Kay here, too. So. Cheers. Yeah, it's fun. We're, we're at the back room of James number 43. Mm-hmm. We're... we're Doing oral histories, exploring you know some of these great new people in, in the world of cider. It's, it's been a lot of fun. We've interviewed guys like John Bunker and um, Ben Watson, Ben Watson, and some really cool people. So it's good to have you, Steve. Yeah, thanks. So Steve, how did you get started? I mean, I, I know you came to me and, and I've I've sold some, some of your items. You know your your Soundpost cider and, and your Pomo, which I really love as a style. But how did you get started as a cider maker? I got started, I, uh, I got introduced, I guess, to, to quality ciders from someone named Peter Hoover, who lives in Ithaca, and I, I don't know what year he was born, he's probably in his 70s, and he planted an, or- an orchard of bittersweets about 20 years ago, and um, he's, made, he, he's made cider in a bunch of different alcohol products Is he a years. commercial cider maker? No, never been commercial, no, home cider maker, but yeah, he's got, I don't know, quarter acre, half acre of... 15 or 20 year old bittersweets so he's got a lot of great fruit and uh, he also works with uh, pears and also he he's also the one that introduced me to just foraging apples so in you know in addition to his orchard that he planted he knew all these big great trees you know some big golden russets and you know pear like peri pear trees that someone i think from switzerland you know emigrated there planted these huge peri pear trees and so Oh, you know, he's lived there for decades, and little by little, he found all these great trees. And so he's the one that introduced me to that concept of, you know, cider making. And so I did it with him, you know, helped him pick apples. And then he's got a big community surrounding him that helps him harvest the apples. You know, they set a date in the fall, and then they all get together. He picks apples, and some, you know, will go help, or other people will help him harvest apples up to that. And then he sweats them. But then there's one day towards the pressing where they just go around to a lot of his forage trees harvest the apples and then haul them down to a commercial press, about a hundred-year-old commercial press that presses them, takes them back home. This is a community press? 
or yeah, well, it's a commercial press, so they sell cider, and it's been in production since pre-prohibition. And it's a big rack and cloth press that's run off a tractor. So the tractor sits outside the barn, has a PTO, and then there's these huge leather belts that carry, you know, the energy inside and runs the hydraulic press. It's about a four foot by four foot hydraulic press. And you can just take a truckload of apples down there. I mean, a bunch of people around us do it. There's a lot of non-commercial cider makers, like, you know, just like I started out, who, you know, you can go to there, press a couple hundred gallons in a morning. Yeah. And that press, it's it's pretty efficient. In fact, that's still how I press most of my apples. I just bought a smaller rack and cloth press for doing a lot of my smaller scale stuff. But the ones, you know, if I'm going to make 100 or 200 cases now, I'll take it to this press that was started in, I think it was 1913. And it's still, the same family still using it. There's three or four generations of people. In fact, last time I was there, there were three generations of people there working it. And it's, yeah, it's That's amazing. Cool. So, like, t- just t- talk us through the finger. Like, let's. So, you got there's some old apple trees there. There's people keeping this old knowledge alive. Tell yeah. us about some of the other people that you're working with. Some of the other cider makers that are active. Well, yeah, ranges the gamut. So, yeah, Peter introduced me to the forage stuff, and then there's also um, like Eric Shat of Redbird. He, he was a huge influence on me. He um, he does a lot of his own foraging. And he planted an orchard of bittersweets probably seven or eight years ago. Um, he comes, he was working in wineries before that. And so that's another huge influence on all of us cider makers there is we're surrounded by the wineries and winemakers. And so our friends are winemakers and we can collaborate with them on, you know, on just on tasting alone. It's been a huge education being able to, you know, taste my ciders with, you know, my friend Daniel was a winemaker at Weimar. And to be able to taste things with professionals like that in the field is, you know, That's really a really interesting collaboration that's yeah. developing. So and so, you know, in the Finger Lakes, that's the culture. We've got all this great fruit. I mean, we have wild fruit for one thing, but then we've got bittersweets that people like Peter and Eric and um, Ian Merwin from um, Black Diamond. So there's that. And then there's also, there's so many old farms that planted orchards 100 years ago. And so one of the orchards that I use are these 30 or 40 foot tall and they're kings and baldwins and they haven't been touched in decades. They may have never been sprayed, but yet the fruit it does is almost undamaged, you know, even. I mean, maybe it's so high they're, you know, they're above the fog and the bugs. I don't know. So we've got, you know, the wild apples. We've got orchards that are planting really high quality and some that are just growing fruit for, uh, for eating mostly, but growing heirloom varieties there's a place called Indian Creek who actually was started by the Cummins family who has Cummins Nursery most cider makers will be familiar with that because they probably sell the most cider apples uh, the most diverse cider apples um, that you can mail order so they have a they have a nursery there and they have an orchard with all kinds of uh, you know russets and pippins and ash meets kernel and and so I've had an arrangement with them. I play music at some of the events, and I can pick up the drops. And so I'm just Sounds fortunate like that deal. the orchards around mm-hmm. us have planted amazing stuff. So yeah. having great fruit is... And the climate and the soils. You know, they're glacial soils, and um, the climate's not too hot. Cheers to that. Yeah. Hey, let's, let's talk about this cider that we're drinking now. Tell us what it is, and, and Kay, you can... Analyze it for us. Oh, sure. Well, I'd like Stephen to tell us first a little bit about it. Sure. So, Pack Basket. Yeah, this is called Pack Basket, and it was made from the 2014 harvest, which was very a very light crop for wild or even unmanaged trees. What even, was that? It, it goes back to 2012, where we had a March in 2012 that hit 80 degrees, and it was hot in March for like a week in 2012. And so all the fruit trees flowered way too early. And then when we had the normal frosts in May, all the fruit got wiped out. Or not all the fruit, but 80% maybe, 90%. Some orchards got totally wiped out. So there was very little fruit in 2012. And so now there's echoes from that year because when they don't make any fruit, all they do with that energy is make fruit buds for the next year. So in 2013, the trees were covered. I mean, nobody has around us has ever seen so many trees flowering in one year it was just normally half your trees flower one year half another i'm talking about like wild cherries and apples and pears Um, but now they're sort of set to one year 
And so in 2013, they all flower, they all you know, produce massive amounts of fruit. So then they didn't have the energy to make fruit buds for the next year. And so 2014, even though the, the weather conditions were okay in the spring, it was a very low crop because it was an echo from 2012. Does the low crop then affect the quality of the apple, or how does it affect the quality It can, of the yeah. Apple? 2012 ciders were great. I mean, they were just like, I shouldn't say great, they were like exceptional. Because it's such a low crop, mm-hmm. the flavors are really concentrated. You know, the, the tree is still photosynthesizing, and so it can send a lot more energy, I think, to those apples. Um, so it's an interesting trade-off for the cider drinker, less yeah. fruit, or cider maker, less fruit. Yeah, and I, it's a trade-off that, that vineyards and, you know, winemakers are, cust- you know, it's just customary to think about that when you're producing fruit for wine or for cider. Like, you don't want to overcrop things. You want, you know, you want them to, to be able to concentrate flavors and, and stuff like that. And so this one is called Pack Basket because even though it was a, it was a really light year for the crop, it was... Um, 2014, so there was almost no wild fruit. But then I love it. I have a friend who who spends a lot of time in the woods. He's hunting and fishing out there all the time, and everybody knows I'm looking for wild apples. And he found some for me. And they most of them in this in this bottle were all from one valley. It was a really high valley, and there was a really good crop of wild fruit. And I, I think that's the case because I'm guessing that in 2013, when everything else was was overloaded that these trees got frosted. Mm-hmm. So not only did they not have fruit in 12, probably not in 13, and that's why they had fruit in 2014. And so it's called Pack Basket because it was far enough off the road that we had to bushwhack in there and harvest the apples and then put them in a pack basket and haul them out to the road to get them in the truck. And so, so a lot of work goes into this one. Yeah, this one yeah. in particular. Yeah. yeah. So glad and there's plenty did. of wild trees you can, you know, I'm savoring this or two. Yeah. What, what, what's the flavor profile in this kit? You know, it's funny. Tasting this, I almost, I would, could, I almost would have guessed it was from Virginia because it's got this high acid and high salinity quality, those traits that I've found in all the Virginia ciders that we've tasted. So I wonder if there's something specific about that climate and that terroir that go into this because it's got a nice, uh, it's got some dried grass notes and certainly the apple is present in apple peel, but really distinctly high acid and high salt in here. Yeah, it is very, yeah, that salinity is is really high. Mm -hmm. Mm. And there are some pears too. Delicious and refreshing. Yeah, there's... Um, in fact, this is the. These are the, actually the apples. I'm sorry, you can't see it on the radio, but maybe you could go online and just look. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, I've picture. got them on my website, but these are the wild apples. These mm-hmm. are the apples we're drinking right now. This is from Pack Basket. Yeah. And, um, so, and Steve. It, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. And sometimes the apples are incredibly small. So, being wild apples, they're not bred to be big eating apples that you can, you know, fill your hand with. Some of them are almost as small as cherries, even when they're perfectly ripe but they're so full of flavor. It's almost like there's the same amount of flavor in a small apple that there is in a big apple. It just gets concentrated sometimes. Before you met, you said it was Peter Hoover? Is that mm-hmm. the name of your friend who introduced you to cider? Did you know about apples? Oh, yeah. I grew, I grew up feeding apples to cows, you know, uh-huh. um, just out of my hands and eating wild apples. You know, like I ate wild apples. I probably ate more wild apples as a kid than cultivated apples just because they were there. But um, And also, you know, even though I never went with him, my father actually, every Tuesday, I remember as a kid, would go to the cider cellar. And I didn't even really think about what that was or know what that was. But he, there were these farmers that had a cellar in their barn that had barrels full of cider. And it was a community operation where if you wanted to make a barrel of cider, you did it at Barney and Bill's. And the, it was a cellar full of barrels, and they made cider, and every Tuesday night... People got together and drank cider there, and I never got to go because by the time I was old enough to do that, I wasn't living at home anymore. I, you know, I, I, that was in uh, Western New York, mm-hmm. about two and a half hours west of where I live now in Ithaca. So as soon as I was eighteen, I moved to the Finger Lakes, and I never really, you know, it, I, I've been trying to figure out how to track them down. They're not there anymore, but I'd love to see that place because it's like, you know, it was a huge community. So where was it? Um, it? I have to find out the name of the town. You don't remember the town? It, it, was, it was somewhere probably 30 or 30 miles southeast of Buffalo, New York. I, I will track this down. I will, I will track them down. But, my, yeah, my dad says that one of them is still alive, um, but they don't have the farm anymore. 
It's a great piece of American cider yeah. history. Yeah, I've got to go. I've got to go visit that place because you know I had so cider was in my consciousness from the time I was yeah. I don't know three four years old. It's like oh, it's Tuesday. Dad's at the cider cider cider. Cider cider. I like that. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it could be a chain restaurant. You know, Cracker Barrel. <laughs> Probably <cider> someday. <laughs> we'll do it. You know. But well, this is cool, man. You know, the first time I met you, you just kind of like walked in, and I know, I know you've listened to the, the show, but I didn't really realize, you know, how rooted you were to cider heritage. and You know, you're, you're, you've been planting trees too, right? Yep. Yeah, I started planting some trees. I started grafting trees about two years ago and put them what used to be our vegetable garden turned into a nursery for a couple of years because it already had a deer fence around it. So I, I grafted and planted a bunch of trees in there. At, at the same time, I ordered some cider trees to be grafted for me. And so this past spring, um, I planted about 1,000 cider trees. I fenced in three acres, and I plowed it and um, got it prepared last summer. And so, yeah, I planted 1,000 trees this spring. And most of those trees are the ones that I ordered. That They're uh, a lot of French and English and American cider apples. Bitter, French and English bittersweets along with stuff like golden russet from America and then the ones that I put in the garden I'm still letting grow because they they were wild apples that the the sticks are so tiny they're less than an eighth of an inch around and when commercial nurseries are propagating trees they want them to be a quarter inch they want these big sticks that you can put in the ground they're vigorous they grow like crazy but wild trees like this one they when they grow their their sticks are very so small because they're just growing so slow that grafting those um, the, you start with these just tiny little things that take years to get big enough to plant out. So, so they require so, a little more care. And a little way more care at first, yeah. But then I put them on Bud One Eighteen, a rootstock, which is going to be a good sized tree. And so once you know, now they're finally in their second or third year, they're really starting. To so you're going to let your trees grow fairly large. You're not putting them on dwarf rootstocks or keeping them. I did a bunch of semi dwarf in the planting this spring. It's all semi dwarf. Planted anywhere from four feet apart uh, to twelve feet apart, depending on you know the size of the tree. And so a lot of those, it's a higher density. Um, but then these other ones that I'm planting in the next few years are 118s that I'm going to plant outside the deer fence and use individual exclosures because it's in a big meadow that will eventually um, have animals. So I got a high density orchard to start because I'll get fruit in a few years. All right, man, we're off to a great start here. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. In 1996, Elknife & Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's a special cider back. session. I'm here with Gay and Kay from United States of Cider at Hello Cider. Beer Sessions Radio brought to you by Union Beer Distributors, supply of world-class ales and ciders. So Steve Salen from uh, South Hill Cider. You, know, you, you came in yesterday uh, here at Jimmy's Number 43. You, you, you delivered to me uh, two, two different ciders. So what did you bring me? Because I'm looking forward to putting them on the list tonight. I brought you Pack Basket, which we just talked about, um, which is all 100% wild seedling fruit. So nothing that was ever planted by a human, as far as I can tell. And uh, relatively unmanaged. Some of them I clear weeds around. Um, and the other one that I brought you yesterday, we're not tasting in the show, it's called Bluegrass Russet. And that's a golden russet-based cider, uh, which is more of a kind of a champagne-y style, low tannin, uh, 
super bubbly. Is that what we're tasting right now? No, what we're tasting now is uh, it, it, it's been called. I, I wasn't labeling it as single tree, but since I've been telling people how I made it, that's you know that's how people are referring to it. And it's it's a cider that I found. Uh, I found one tree, and this was in 2013. A really interesting tree. I was visiting a friend who lives on a farm that was built in 1865. The farmhouse was from 1865, and from a distance, I could just see. A, like a pink hue on on these apples, and it was probably September, maybe late August, and the color of them just drew me to them. So I went and checked it out, and and as soon as I checked out the apple, I could tell it had the qualities that I could try and make a single varietal cider out of it. How do you tell that? As you're looking at it, you're tasting it, yeah, showing one, it. What's the process? You you the components are generally the the acids, the tannins, and the sugars that you're looking for and this had acidity and it also had a fair amount of tannins and enough sugar too I mean once you start to pay attention to those qualities you can pretty much you know ballpark it just by biting into an apple and sure enough now that I've made the cider and you know I checked the bricks the sugar content was already I think it was already 14 or 15 bricks in September when it was ripe which is very unusual for fruit where we are you know we can get fruit that high or or higher by late season. And so I, I harvested all these apples and I, I pressed them by themselves and fermented it and bottled it. And so this is from 2013 and so it's um, really settled in. And it's to me it's just it's phenomenal. And It's got tannin for days. Yeah, right? I mean, days this cider has. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really a beautiful golden color too. It's just shiny and dancing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty yeah, brilliant. So, so we're holding it up, look, looking at it. Sorry, people at <laughs> we really are listeners. Trust us. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, you, yeah. you, you've got like a science background. So, so what did you study, and, and how did you pick up what you know about maiden science? Oh, well, uh, I, I was always interested in science and ecology, so that's what I studied after high school was natural resources conservation, forest biology, and um, and then soils. I studied, I actually was at Virginia Tech, but that was before uh, Greg, who's a great apple guy, has been down there. But um, so, uh, so yeah, I studied soils at the Forestry Department at Virginia Tech, and so that's my background. I was uh, always interested in botany. I, I, I would, for years, I would have to identify every plant I could find, you know, and I was, originally I was in the Finger Lakes uh, when I did the natural resources degree, and that was just sort of my hobby. Um, and then, uh, so I did that for a long time, that was in grad school, but then when I was in grad school, I also apprenticed with a fiddle maker, because um, I play fiddle music, and I've always been interested in that instrument, too. And so, I got trained with him, moved to Ithaca, looked for a job or a position doing some kind of science at Cornell, and didn't quite find what I was looking for, um, and but there was a niche for me in the violin world because there's a lot of musicians there, and the luthier who took care of a lot of people had just left, and so so then I got into that, was doing that primarily as my job for, I don't know, for a few years, and that's when I started making cider, and um, so yeah, then, so I've been kind of coming back into the science world, like with orcharding. Even when I went to school, what I wanted to do was apply the science. And I, I still remember writing my essays, getting into grad school. Like, I, I want to learn this, but I want to be working in the field and applying it. And I just ended up studying soils in a more theoretical way. And, but now I'm realizing, okay, this is what I was trying to get at. You know, I need to understand these soils and the bugs and, you know, everything in order for these trees to really be happy out there. And so... I've sort of come full circle with my education, finally, to the orcharding and with the cider making. It's also, I mean, it's an art and a science, for sure. More more an art than a science. Yeah, it says on your label for your cider that uh, you're, you want your orchard to be part of a harmonious ecosystem that relies on diversity and fertility as its foundation. And you also just mentioned bugs. So what are some of the, the practices you use in your orchard that support those ideals? Um, well, that is, that's a great question. And right off the bat, um, I mean, using the word organic, you don't necessarily know what that means. But, you know, for me, right off the bat, it's like I don't want to destroy the ecosystem that's there. A lot of the ways mm-hmm. that people start agricultural operations, um, 
is they'll you know they'll go in and they'll they'll hit it with Roundup and kill everything and then start from there because it's a lot easier to do that. But you know I just can't do that because I know that there's these fungi and bacteria and bugs and everything mm-hmm. in the soil that I want to stay there. And so rather than you know going that route, which is very conventional and you know easy, I just you know I got this. 40 horse tractor from my highway superintendent that you know actually turned out to be a vineyard tractor from 30 years ago and just plowed it and dissed it and you know and prepared the rows that I needed to plant the trees in and spent hours and hours and hours and so much time just getting it to that point because it was actually going to help conserve some of the you know biota that's there and then um, also when uh, I'm thinking about looking for pests or anything, you know, I'll go in there and with really small trees, sometimes, you know, if you get some caterpillars in there, they can be really devastating. And so there's certain bacteria you can spread, which will only affect those caterpillars. It, it won't kill any other bugs. It won't, you know, harm anything. Um, it's really, you know, it's very well known these days. It's a really common organic, you know, uh, treatment. And so just being as hands off as I have to be, in order for things to not get devastated, you know, I'm not, I'm not going out there worrying about every, you know, any, every fungi or, or anything. But if there's something that's going to be devastating, I'll, you know, try and take, take care of it. But mulching, like weed control, I'm just putting down, literally tons and tons and tons and tons of wood chips and mulch on these rows to help keep the weeds down and just, you know, weeding by hand, and everything. Um, Where do those wood chips come from? Local uh, tree guys. So if yeah. someone has a tree that falls down in their yard or need, needs to cut down for some reason, they cut the tree down. And then they use the big parts of the tree for firewood, and then the tops, they, have, they, they shred them, which is great to feed the soil, you yeah. know, because it's got minerals and, you know, energy in there. And so not only does it keep the weeds down, but it also then, as it breaks down, it feeds the soil. And... Um, that's great, man. It's a great approach. Well, you know, let's say you go into the, the woods and you find a, an old tree that's been there and nothing's been done to it for a long time. Is that tree ready, you know, for you to take those apples and make cider from it or do you have to kind of like work that tree a little bit? That's a great question. It, it can it can be, it can fall into either camp. And generally the, the triage that I look at with wild tree, you go in there and you look at the tree and is it getting enough light? It's just like any garden. It needs It needs light for one thing and so sometimes apple trees will be totally overshadowed by large hardwoods and sometimes they won't be um, I found them in both you know both cases so that's the number one thing is if, if it's out there and it's getting plenty of light those apples are probably totally going to be going to be fine and then it's um, being able to actually harvest the tree so if it's if it's surrounded by honeysuckle bushes or wild rose or some shrubs where you can't even get to the tree you've somehow got to got to, you know, either pull them out or, or get, it, get it so you can get your tarps on top of those trees to pick or, you know. How badly do you want those apples, I right. guess? It's what's, like, what's what's the, the practicality? Like, do yeah. they look like they're worth that effort or Yeah, not? and that's, you know, so getting enough light, getting it so you can actually harvest the apples, and then possibly pruning trees, you know, because by pruning you can increase the quality sometimes. But on some, a lot of these wild trees, especially, you know, ones that are like a hundred and some years old and they're growing really slowly, I don't necessarily want to touch them. You know, it's like, it's like a, like a it's like the fragile the giving old, tree. You don't want to mess with it. Yeah. Like a, you know, yeah, it's just, there's almost too much reverence for it to even try and change its direction in any way. You're like, okay, this is who you are. I'm just going to. Like again, this kind of like a holistic religion based around these apple trees between you and uh, John Bunker. It's like everything's like, stay where you are, leave things yeah. as they are. Yeah, and appreciate them for what they are. It's, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, it's all, it's, it's all kind of pagan, actually, right? You know, just drinking mm, the fruit. Celebrate, yeah, drinking the fruit. And it's beautiful. The, the, this one, the color of this, it, it is like kind of this gold apple wine. Color. Yeah, it really is. So when you, yeah. you, you've got your, your special tree that's surrounded by honeysuckles and wild roses and you put your tarps down how do you go in and harvest that you have like five guys you climb in the tree do you just, what do you do how do you get all the apples out of these old guys uh so, sometimes it's climbing and picking but more often than not i have a i have a pole with a hook on the end it's called a panking stick a panking pole i guess in england um and so i generally lay a tarp out on the ground put the pole up in there and uh just 
you know, give it just these gentle, big shakes to get all the so apples to fall. So that's a historically very ancient method of oh, I'm getting sure, the yeah. pole. It's like yeah. very And so that, that is how I get most of the fruit. And on, um, for the past few years, it's pretty much just me. And I'll take, you know, some friends if, if they have time to go out with me or my wife and kids after, you know, after school, after work. Um, we'll go out and harvest them. But this year I'm getting a little more organized because I'm realizing the, the trees that are the most um, interesting to me are also the most difficult to harvest and take the most time. And so what I'm limited by is just the amount of time and energy I can put into harvesting it. And so I've, you know, I'm, I'm getting a list of friends together who are always telling me, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll help you out in the fall. <laughs> and so I've got a huge list, and I, I'm hoping to get really organized and and have a bunch of friends help me. I've, I've actually bought a bunch more apple crates, mm-hmm. and so I'm going to put a bunch of crates at this location and that location and th- that location, and and have people that harvest I can harvest party. Yeah, harvest party that yeah. kind of goes out, and then we bring it back in and and press it. So it's a huge team team event. So you get you get sure. the apples, like and then you, you know how do you practice this? You have your apples. What do you do with them? And, when do you press them and all that? So apples ripen, depending on the variety, generally anywhere, the ones that I pick, from mid-September till early November. And so you have to know when the apples ripe for one thing, which is not an easy thing with wild apples because they can be so tart even when they're perfectly ripe. It's like, how, how do you know? And so you really have to get to know the trees sometimes. And um, So you find out when they're ripe, you harvest all the fruit, you put it in the apple crates, put them on the truck, or on the trailer, and then I take them home and I stack them. I have a canopy that is a shade canopy. I stack them under there on pallets, so they're off the ground and they're in the wind, and so that's where they sweat. So they, if they're not fully ripe, they ripen a little more and they start to dehydrate a little bit, which actually helps them concentrate the sugars and flavors because the, the water evaporates, but the flavors don't. And so it concentrates the flavor, and that's uh, a technique I learned from Peter. You know, and how long is the sweating process generally? A couple weeks to four weeks. Yeah, depends on the fruit and the weather. Mm-hmm. Depends how warm it is. You can sweat them a lot longer later in the season when it's really cool. How do you know when it's done? Like, oh, that apple sweat enough. I can press that now. You just kind of feel it out. Mm. And it also plays into just when you can when you can press them. You're like, okay, I can press either now or next week. And these, yeah, I should press these now. I shouldn't wait until next week. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's interesting. A lot of the cider makers, you have sort of this intuition about things, and I, but I think that there are telltale signs that you are just so much more in tune to um, that we completely miss. If yeah, we were looking at your <laughs> that I would walk yeah. up and say, I don't know, is that apple? Like, if what I recognize, if an apple is say, if you've sweated enough and it's ready to press, would I recognize that as an apple? Yeah, you would probably recognize it as an overripe apple, is okay. my guess, because mm-hmm. it wouldn't be crispy anymore. Mm-hmm. And even a lot of the cider fruit, especially wild fruit, it's not real crispy, because eating fruit that most people are familiar with has been bred to be crispy, mm-hmm. because it's really pleasant to bite into that. But cider apples, even cultivated cider apples, they're, they're mealy and tough. And so um, once you sweat them, they, they get softer. You know, they're not real crispy, mm-hmm. and they might taste a little bit sweeter. Um, what about smell? Is there any change in Oh, yeah, smell? yeah. The smells really come out. They start to smell really fruity, a lot more fruity. And, um, yeah, I guess overripe is a term that you, you know, like if, if I had an apple on my counter that I was planning on eating, you would start to smell it, and it would shrivel a tiny bit maybe and be like, okay, that's overripe. But if you're planning on pressing it into cider, you're like, yeah, that's ready. That's ready. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Understanding the apple. Yeah. Cheers to you guys. Now, this is pretty cool, man. I mean, I love sitting and getting deep with you. Um, what Some of the other cider makers, so Redbird, they're up by you, Eric and, and Deva. Um, is anyone else that's making commercial cider now in, in the Fringe Lakes that we might know about? Yeah. Yeah, we're, we have at least seven or seven commercial cider makers within, you know, within the probably... 30 miles of Ithaca, or, or less, 20 miles. So, yeah, there's Redbird, um, Black Diamond, which I mentioned Ian earlier. He uh, He's a total Apple pro. Um, and we've got the 
Good Life Farm, which makes Good Life Cider, uh, Good Life Cider, and they have the Finger Lake Cider House that has five of us cideries are represented there. It's, it's the only tasting room among the five of us, and it's at their farm on Cayuga Lake. Uh, phenomenal place to visit, and that's where we all send people if they ask if we have a tasting room because we all have cider there. And that just recently opened, correct? It's kind correct. Of yeah, and Eve's deal. is also part of that. So Eve's cider is also. At the cider house. Well, that's great. We're going to come back in a few minutes to talk more about Finger Lake Cider on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. A special cider sessions. Steve Sellen, uh, South Hill Cider from uh, Finger Lake. So, um, Steve, you're talking about Finger Lake Cider. And what just happened? You, you opened a Finger Lakes tasting room? So, the, the Good Life Farm, it was a, a vegetable, organic vegetable farm that farmed with horsepower. They, I mean, literally horses, like not just horsepower tractors. Um, and they started, they started making cider and planting cider trees. And so they opened a tasting room called the Finger Lake Cider House, which is a collaborative tasting room uh, between five of us cideries. So Eve's Cidery, Redbird, Black Diamond, and South Hill Cider. We all have our ciders available at the tasting room for sale. And for tasting, you could probably taste 20 or more ciders in one place. And, um, I mean, we're biased. We're in the Finger Lakes, but we really think that as a, as a region, we are making a very cohesive, high-quality product that uh, is really exciting to be part of. Well, I just went online yesterday and looked at the tasting room menu. If you Bravo. Excellent list of ciders. You could go up and spend two days just sampling cider. And food, too. Like, their, their menu, if you can't grow it in the Finger Lakes, it's not on the menu. So they get, I mean, they work with a lot of farms growing, whether it's meat or cheese or making bread or other vegetables, yogurt, so many high-quality food products come from our neighborhood, and so they, they have a CSA Plus, they call it, which you know, delivers that stuff around, and so they have that there, so they have food produced on site, so you can get your ciders paired with the food right from the region. So an ciders excellent cider vacation destination, Finger Lakes. I still can't get through it. What's the name of the tasting room? I've seen so many references to it. The Finger Lakes Cider House. Finger Lakes Cider House. Right. <laughs> so complicated. <laughs> now it makes so much more perspective. <laughs> and all the different mm-hmm. cider makers are part of that. Yeah, and so we, we, hope we have uh, release events there. Eve's just released a couple ciders there uh, last week. And Redbird and South Hill are releasing some ciders at uh, the beginning of August, I think it is. Yeah. So we, that's where we can have our release events and uh, special events. They have music. And it's, a re- it's a really family-friendly um, And do you go every to. Tuesday? I don't go to the cider <laughs> cellar every Tuesday like my dad, no. But the cider house. <laughs> right. Well, this is cool to see that you have, there are these old traditions of cider and that you, where you guys, in the Finger Lakes, you're kind of, kind of living it. So Finger Lakes Cider, I mean, I know like Cider Week started in New York and it branched off and there's Finger Lakes Cider Week. What's that like? It sounds like you guys have a great community up there. Yeah, it's great. There's So there's the Finger Lake Cider Week. There's Hudson Valley Cider Week and New York Cider Week. We're all kind of hosting our separate events. And it, it's mainly, uh, it's yeah, to help. Uh, a lot of it's educating the, uh, the restaurants and bars and the people around us that, hey, there is cider here that is every bit as sophisticated and elegant as any, any drink you can imagine, you know? Um, and because a lot of people are still learning that, I'm sure you all know. And yeah, so, it's a so, process. so yeah, mm-hmm. so we're using Cider Week as one sort of cohesive um, point to, to educate people from and say, hey, we've got this week where we're all going to focus when on When is it this year? It is around October 2nd to 12th, whatever those two weekends are. 
I think that's yeah, October October second to twelfth. That's great. Yeah. And so this is this is what the sound post. Now is this is this the, the sound post that I've had here since the winter? Because I know you delivered it to me and I, I kind of was sitting on it. Yeah, you had a bunch of it. I um, thought this one was so this worth is. sitting. And on. there are only I think four cases of this left. So this is sound post from 2013, and I didn't make it in 14 because of the biennial aspect of the apples. And so I'm hoping to make it again this fall. But what uh, what apples are you using in this? So size? these are there's a lot of bittersweets. Um, so there's Dabinette, Ellis Bitter are the two probably in highest proportion there. And then uh, there's a bunch of heirlooms like um, Newtown Pippin. There's even some Liberty, which is a more contemporary apple, but very disease-resistant. What fruit is contributing to the aroma? Because it's really, really lovely to uh, stick your nose in the glass on this one. The aroma, it's a combination of bittersweets, but also from, uh, it's the oak. There's, the oak you know, there's the some. Barrel, yeah. Yeah, there's some old barrels that it was matured in. So as soon as the primary fermentation was done, or even almost done, there was still some sugar left in it, but it was very slow because it was, I think, around January. And it was getting really cold, and so I just I racked it into the barrels, and so that's where it finished and settled. And, and that also helped. It's also why these tannins are so smooth. Like, the finish on this, after you swallow, it just it goes on for, you know, for a minute. And I think that's... I think the barrel helps those tannins does. from the bittersweets to actually polymerize or do something to, to really mellow them out. I'm really, really excited about working with barrels for that reason because they can do things to the to the cider. You know, it's not like they're just putting flavor on it. They they actually catalyze reactions chemically in that in that cider. And where do you get your barrels? What are those? Uh, these ones, these ones I actually ordered. I, they they were old whiskey barrels were that whiskey. I got. Yeah, they were bourbon barrels. But now all mm-hmm. the barrels I've been buying are from wineries around me. I've I've gotten to know enough winemakers that I know when the barrels are available, and so mm-hmm. they have some really nice American and French oak barrels that are just great. And mm-hmm. so that's most of the barrels that I'm buying now are French oak and Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, because this is, I mean, the oak is definitely present, but it's in a really refined way. And, like, you were just talking about the finish, and the finish is definitely long, but it's really subtle and smooth, and it's not, like, harsh, that kind of harsh oakiness that you can sometimes get. So, um, yeah, I don't know where you're getting your barrels, but Well, it's the barrels, it but it's also, but see, mm-hmm. that's the thing is it's also the bittersweets, because mm-hmm. it's, I, I think... Yeah, because if you just take an average apple juice that you get from, you know, wherever the dessert apples and throw it in a barrel, you can get some some flavor of the barrel in there, but those reactions I'm talking about don't happen because the tannins aren't there. And so putting a bunch mm-hmm. of bittersweet, you know, structured cider into a barrel was an experiment because I never did that because I never, you know, I didn't have that much to work with. But I figured the tannins in the bittersweet juice, in the bittersweet cider, was actually going to be able to play off the barrel. And so mm-hmm. I think it's that reaction of the actual tannins from the apples with the barrel that gives that really elegant, you know, complex thing mm-hmm. because there's a it's, lot of barrel-aged yeah. ciders that are just made with... It stays right in juice. the center of your tongue for just a while, but in the most pleasing way, just like you don't want it to stop. Just like yeah, it just feels like it's sitting there, and you can Don't just stop. continue. <laughs> yeah, you can just continue to savor that cider, and you get like sort of at the end, you just kind of taste the fruit more. Even you know, when we opened this, I, I knew that I'd had it in my cellar for six months. I had a moment of panic. Something as a consumer, you know, when is too long to keep my cider? And I think it's probably better now than it was six months yeah. ago. Yeah, when there's when the more tannins that are in there, the, the better it ages, in my experience, absolutely. So we're going to keep the sound post cider by the bottle. A lot of the ciders that we do at Jimmy's Home 43 will, will, will pop and serve by the glass. But now, you know, finding a cider like this, we also have a 2009 West County Kingston Black. Whoa. There's a couple that, that seem to be, you know, age-worthy. And those are the type of ciders we won't serve by the glass. And we'll keep it by the bottle. And, and talking about, you know, cider lists and for consumers, you're in town for something at Wasail, right? The cider bar downtown. What, what, what are you doing or what did you do? There's a Cider Maker's Dinner tonight. So yep. Tuesday and so, in July, which will be passed by the time yep. we air this. But. Yeah, so they've, they've designed a menu around a selection of our ciders. And um, and we'll be there eating dinner and chatting with everybody that's there about about the ciders. And, uh, is that is Wasilla kind of place 
Do you guys think that would they be selling certain bottles of cider? That's a good question. They they should. I I should have that conversation with them because there are some ciders that are totally age worthy, and there will be more and more as we get more of the bitter sweets. And then that would make Those for an ones. amazing yeah, tasting I mean, that's, dinner. That's one thing for me. <laughs> whether you're going to a specialty wine shop or, or a good restaurant bar, you you do want to have certain you know distinctions, and if, if you're able to get a product that's worth selling, it's always good in my mind. It's something that adds value as a consumer. You know, I can have cider by the glass, but I know now if I have the Soundpost cider here, I'd want to try it as well, you know? Right. Yeah, you might want to write the date on there because um, we're slowly be- being able to get some vintage dates on here. The We're not allowed to put a vintage date prominently on the front label because just the way the TTB works. So it's kind of frustrating. We can't say... 2014 Finger Lake Cider on our front label. Which is also Just frustrating as a consumer if you are collecting someone's ciders over a period of time. You need to figure out how right. to know but, which. But, you, but a lot of people I've seen, you can have a batch number on your back label, which this happens to be batch number 2014. And so um, so as, as, as often as we can, there's stuff like that, but, but the sound post in particular is not labeled with with a vintage date, so if you want to write 2013 on your case, so you remember, it's probably a good idea to do that. All right. I know Wassail does mm-hmm. that. Every time they purchase, they do ask which vintage is this because they know it's not necessarily on the label, but they want to know. So they are they're, they are thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And I'm, I'm I'm and it's fun to talk about. Have you guys been been back down to Wassail recently? You've been to some of the dinners and tastings? I went to the John Bunker talk and tasting recently, which was great and was sold out, so that's very exciting to see. It was standing room only. And then so. for him, because he's, he's, he's an orchardist and, you know, Apple educator, historian. what ciders did they serve to John Bunker? Well, he I think he selected the ciders based off his talk, and there was a French cider from Normandy and mm. I'm going to draw a blank now on the rest, but it was three ciders. It was a Farnham Hill. I believe Farnham Hill Extra Dry and a French cider, and I forget what the third one. What would you do, Stephen? You also have a pomo, which is a, a nice style. If, if if someone were to learn about cider from you and you had to pick three or four ciders to give them a sense of what's out there, what what, what would you pick? It doesn't have to be a particular label, but I would probably I would probably do something very similar to that. I would probably pick a uh, a French cider to show something that might have like a ton of tannins but also a lot of residual sugar um, I would might choose one of the Asturias ciders to show them hey this is also a cider it's you know totally different profile but because it's made in a certain way uh, I would definitely choose a Finger Lake cider because it every region is getting its own you know uh, profiles and you know um, I think ours generally have you know really nice acid and also tannins because we have the apples for it um so to show them that regional and uh, national diversity of, of ciders, because the diversity is huge, you can pretty clearly you know, pick out a French So cider. the Finger Lakes, it's really standing out, though, in, in New York State. I mean, it seems like you, you have the most accomplished cider makers in New York in, in one region. I mean, I don't, I'm not disparaging anyone else, but... Kind of seems that way. I think it? we are really fortunate, yeah, that we do have, and, and partly it's people are very collaborative. I've definitely learned a lot from the other cider makers in my area, uh, both about how to produce my fruit and um, and how to uh, how to make the cider. So, so now at Pomo, and I, I'm jumping on Pomo because Pomo was yeah, we have to talk about this French Pomo from Normandy. Mm-hmm. Domaine DuPont was one of the first cider products that, that, that I tried and sold here at Jimmy's Number 43. We used to keep it in a little oak barrel on the bar and, and give it to guests on the way out or sell it. And it was it was a great product. It was new to me and new to a lot of people. So tell us what Pomo is and also how you started making it. Pomo, it's a blend of distilled apple spirits. Apple brandy is the easiest way to describe it if you know specifically what that is. Um, so you take some high-proof apple brandy that's not been cut to be bottled. So it's probably 60 to 75%. So what is that, 120 to 150 proof um, brandy. And you blend that with fresh, unfermented apple cider. So apple juice that's unprocessed. And you blend those two together. 
so that the alcohol content is high enough, no fermentation happens, and it becomes stable. So there's no other, nothing else you have to do. You just mix them together and then let them sit for a long time. And the increased alcohol actually ca causes the pectins and other proteins and solids to coagulate and settle to the bottom. And then you rack off the top this, this clear liquid. And so... And then, it, and then sometimes it's aged and sometimes it's not. The Normandy Pomos have to be aged, I think it's 15 or 18 months after they're blended before they can sell it as Pomo. And the brandy has to be aged a certain time period. Um, but the producers in New York State that I'm aware of, um, you know, we aren't bound by those requirements. And, and having it more fresh like this, some, some of this brandy was aged in wood, but... Uh, and this pomo was not aged in wood. And so it's, it's got a much more fresh, fruit-forward character than any of the French pomos for that reason, which some people you know, really like. It's really accessible. Um, and now I am starting to age some in wood, too, so I, at some point I will have different pomos. Are you doing but, your own distilling, or are you working with someone else? Because um, of the way the laws are and licenses work, I have to have my brandy right now custom distilled for me because I just don't have the facility and license to do it myself. I started doing it, I learned from someone who made everything, distilled everything by himself, did everything by himself. And so I learned how to do it that way and I did it that way for a while. But now that I'm a licensed producer, I have to do everything by the books. And so I sure. contract it to a distiller and have it made specifically how I want it made. And, and then I purchase so it. So you're still controlling the process. You're just not. Yeah. And that's been an interesting process too, because uh, I think for, for, for all of us involved, because some, some, at first what I was asking for had a lot more flavor in it, but you have to be, I don't know, as a, as a rookie distiller, at least, you have to be a little bit more like trusting and daring and be like, okay, yeah. But then in the end, it ends up better. I mean, basically, you know, it's like the French stuff. You have more heads and tails in there at the beginning, and then, you know, you age it. So that's why some of the stuff was aged in wood because it's like, okay, this is going to. I, sure I love Pomo so much. We, we got one of your deliveries, we got a case of Pomo, and we kept tracking it and it kept disappearing. So somebody on my staff liked it a lot. <laughs> so it, that's the other issue we have, but I, I, I like it a lot, too. So maybe it was me drinking and I can't remember, but... <laughs> uh, that's a risk, I guess. Yeah. yeah. This is a great show, man. And she got this little brochure. Uh, any book, books of the day? We did okay. not bring any books of the day, but I think the brochure stands in as a book. It's got beautiful photographs and really tells you about the region and the history of the fruit, and the details of the different ciders that South Hill is producing. Let's see if we have a website. Yes, it's uh, southhillcider.com. All right. Yeah. This has been a lot of fun, and, um, you know, we're going to keep doing these cider shows, and uh, I'd like to thank everybody. Kay Michaels and Gay Howard from the United States of Cider. Thanks to our engineer extraordinaire, Jack Inslee, who's going to turn this into a, a really great show sometime soon, uh, coming to you in 2015. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.